Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Error monitoring is provided by Rollbar. Learn more at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Command Line Heroes, a new podcast from Red Hat. In this podcast series, you'll hear true epic tales of the developers, the hackers, and the open source rebels revolutionizing the tech landscape. Here's a preview of episode number three, The Agile Revolution. I'm Saranya Barak, and this is Command Line Heroes, an original podcast from Red Hat. Today's story begins in February 2001, and it's set at a ski lodge in Utah. We turned up at a lodge, you know, the pine beams and the fireplace in the uh, entryway. Uh, we got there the night before, and we basically just sat around and talked about what we are going to talk about. And then the next day, we turned up, um, and we'd reserved a meeting room. We took the tables and moved them out to the edge, and we just put the chairs in a circle or an oval. So, you know, we could basically be facing each other and, you know, somewhat more open. These guys were open source developers, so staying open was kind of their thing. That was Dave Thomas. Dave and 16 others got together at Snowbird Ski Resort that winter. Not to ski, but to talk about what was wrong with the developer's world in the 1990s. I say talk, but argue might be more like it. They had originally met at a conference called Oopsla, Object-Oriented Programming Languages and Systems. And it was actually at that conference that they realized they all agreed that creating software was messy. They just hadn't agreed on what they should do about it. So the meeting on the mountain at Snowbird, that was where they were going to try and nail down a solution to that problem. The Agile Revolution and the resulting methodology has impacted every single one of us. Your epic true tales just like this one of hackers who transform tech from the command line up. Subscribe or you get your podcast or visit red.ht slash command line. Once again, red.ht slash command line. Welcome back, everyone. This is The Changelog, and I'm your host, Adam Stokowiak, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog. Today, I'm talking with Brennan Burns and Gabe Monroy at KubeCon 2017. We talked about the origin, the impact, and the future of Kubernetes and cloud infrastructure. Let's kind of give an intro to both of you. I know you're both well-known, but Brennan, let's start with you. Kind of give a backstory, kind of who you are to Kubernetes, so to speak. Sure. Sure. So um, uh, I am one of the original creators of, of Kubernetes, one of the people who wrote the original prototype that sort of was the pitch vehicle that, that got everybody involved in saying that we should do this and sort of set the ground rules for the project um, and been involved in the beginning, sitting on the IRC channel, talking to people, going out to conferences and meetups and kind of hitting the pavement for a long time to kind of drum up a lot of interest. You know, I, I look around at this conference and uh, it's, there's a lot of really interested people, and it wasn't very long ago that I had a lot of people asking me, like, why the heck they should be interested in this thing. So it's, it's kind of a, it's an interesting turnaround. How long ago was that, the, point of view? Oh. Uh, not being, you know, whether they not should being be interested. I mean, I don't know. Like, it depends on two who years, you talk to. Three? Certainly two years ago, but even a year, you know, a year, year and a half ago, I think you run into people who, yeah. who are still, and I think, I mean, obviously still, you know, throughout, there's a lot of people who haven't necessarily... You know, if if their thing is working for them, that's great, right? They don't. There's no need to to, to change. Um, 
but definitely early on, there was a lot of, I think people were just sort of still kind of getting used to the cloud and, and virtual machines and traditional tools like Chef and Puppet. And so that's all of a sudden all this new stuff. And it's like, oh, I have to learn all this new stuff. What am I going to, what am I going to do there? Gotcha. Know? So that's, uh, I, that was an interesting time doing a bunch of meetups. It was a lot of fun though. It was a lot of fun to get out of your shell and go and meet with a bunch of different people from different places, different experiences, um, you know, get to know them and get to know the kind of products they want you to build. So, so for the listener's sake, it's, uh, it's safe to say that you've been, been here since the beginning. Uh, yeah, I would say I've been here, been here since the beginning. Um, I think a lot of the technology stretches back further, further than that. Yeah, because um, it, it's from experience inside of, inside of Google. Yeah, it's, it's from, not exactly it's from, from, it's from board, stuff that's it's, been in the Linux kernel since right. 2008 um, and work that's been done in Linux kernel and even further back. I mean, I, I did this talk a while back about sort of like the history and, and you can point back to like CH roots in Unix in 19, the late 1970s as sort of being the beginnings of containers, right? And, right. and so I think that we, it's important to point back and, and know that this is not an original idea. This is a collection of, of tools that have put together a lot of different ideas that people have had over the years. So, um, and then so now I'm a, I'm a distinguished engineer at Microsoft and uh, running a lot of the container and DevOps stuff that Azure does. Very cool. And uh, Gabe, you, what, what's what's your history, I guess, with Kubernetes specifically? So I, I kind of come at it from a different angle from Brendan. So my history really comes from the developer experience angle. You know, I was doing some consulting in New York, and 2008 happened, and it kind of evaporated overnight. And right. I, I took you know all the commonalities that I was seeing around all the different companies I was working with, and it was all around deployment automation being on fire everywhere. So. I started a company called Optimand and, and uh, you know, building tooling to you know, make deployment automation easier. It's basically running around and you know, adding like early CI systems and Debian packaging and you know, a bunch of stuff to like automate software delivery at a time when that wasn't commonly done. Um, and from there, I sort of evolved and, and that, that, that uh, evolved to sort of pass and, and created this project called Deus, which turned out to be really popular. It was more or less Heroku, but running on your own servers, which is a very common refrain uh, we were hearing from people back in kind of the 2009, 2010 right. time frame. And, but I had the interesting experience of having to replatform the, you know, container-based plat, you know, thing. And actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, early uh, uh, involved in the container ecosystem, close with Solomon, and it was one of the largest external contributors to the Docker project for a, t a while, um, you know, just before it, you know, became popular, only because we needed it for, for the Deus, you know, right. project. And, uh and what ended up happening over time was every orchestrator that we tried to platform it on, it just didn't work and something was wrong. And um, that eventually led me to Kubernetes. And I remember, I think the first time I ever talked with Brennan was about uh, extending the Kubernetes API. And I'll never forget, he's like, oh yeah, he's like, I was on a plane or something and I, and I whipped up, I think you said- SRECon, I was, it was Dublin. Yeah. Going to SRECon in, in Dublin and I'd done this stuff on the and, plane. And he did the TPR, first pass at TPR is the extension model on the plane. He's like, I'm, I'm gonna push this branch up. He's like, you guys take a look at it. Um, and me and Matt Butcher, who's actually the architect on Helm, were like, you know, super excited to, you know, work with him on it. And uh, yeah, so from, you know, from there, you know, ended up uh, uh, joining Microsoft by way of an acquisition seven months ago. And now now, um, sort of Brennan's counterpart on the on the PM side, and, you know, working on the Azure Containers portfolio, so it's AKS, the ACI, the service broker stuff, dev tooling, uh, lots of different things we got in the hopper. I think it's interesting the perspectives here that uh, you know, you said you sort of like represent the end user, so to speak, to, to a degree, a user yeah. of Kubernetes to build a platform and on pre Kubernetes, even you know, trying different platforming tools, different orchestrator tools, 
to build Deus on. And eventually, you know, my perspective from it isn't as a user with Deus, but it seemed like Deus was trying to catch some steam, but it caught a lot of steam with Kubernetes. That's what it sort of like really yeah. solidified I think, in, I think in was, making it easy to use. I think it was one of the first PaaS platforms to realize that the future came in replatforming on top of container orchestration. Right? I think now, a year and a half, two years later, it seems obvious with Cloud Foundry and with uh, OpenShift and others, like replatforming on top of container orchestration. I think you know Deus really saw that early, and I think that 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 caught a lot of caught a lot of attention and light. Yeah, I think well, you know, one of the interesting things to me is is how the developer experience of the time, you know, when Deus was popular, is kind of falling out of favor in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. 12 factor is pretty limiting, and you know, Kubernetes opened up a lot more opportunities, and so we ended up kind of shifting our focus to things like Helm and Draft and Brigade and some of the newer stuff that's a little bit more Kubernetes native uh, in its disposition. And, and I think, you know, you know, what you're seeing from Brendan with MetaParticle is, you know, to, to, you know, to taking that jump, you know, a little bit further. And I think it's really tricky with, with developer experience because on the one hand, you want to be innovative, right? But if you go too far, you're going to lose people, right? And, and, you know, I think, if you and if you don't innovate enough, enough people are going to be like, ah, oh, well, that's not compelling enough for me to drop whatever my current thing is. I think Deus definitely hit a sweet spot in in kind of where it was at the time, um, but I think in a way we've kind of as an industry moved on from that a bit. Right? Yeah, I think that's definitely <laughs> the case. What's the state of Deus right now? Is it? I know it was an acquisition seven months ago. What's the state of the the company, the project? Because uh, it's like a company and then a project in the same, which is somewhat confusing to most people. Yeah, it's, it's an open source project. And what's really cool to me is, you know, we've spent a lot of time trying to put proper governance around it and even small things like semantic commit messages so we could write change logs. Um, and, you know, a lot of that stuff to really just try and uh, get a community to, of maintainers to, to step up. And what I'm really excited about, there's a, a group uh, called Team Heffy or whatever, who ha is sort of taking on the Deus workflow project and driving it in, you know, a new direction direction. Um, and I'm really excited to see that work taken off. It's been highly active. So, uh, and, yeah. And they would say the Deus team itself, like the engineering team from, from the company has been, you know, they are a, a core part of the Azure Container Service team at this point, responsible for a lot of the engineering work that went into the AKS launch that we did recently, as well as, uh, you know, the open source projects that we've launched recently. Uh, Kashti, this GUI for Brigade, uh, it's a workflow engine, the draft tooling that we announced, you know, a, a month or so after the acquisition. Um, so that whole team is contributing to both the core Azure containers experience as well as open source tooling that uh, makes Kubernetes better regardless of, of where you're going to run it. Yeah, and even things like the open service broker, which interestingly, you know, derived, we started thinking about it first at Deus as a PaaS thing because it was a Cloud Foundry-ism. And, and when we were, re, you know, platformed on top of Kubernetes, we're like, well, there's really a better way to solve this in Kubernetes. That linked us up with Red Hat and, and uh, Google, and we all kind of worked together. And I'm really excited to see, like, things like the open service broker stuff landing, not just from Microsoft, but also from folks like Google and, and Red Hat. I mean, everyone talking about this is because you know, it's a pretty important part of the modern stack. Was that announced here at the conference? It was. It was. Yeah. So I didn't catch that announcement yet. Can you give me a, a kind of an overview of what that is? Yeah, sure. The general idea is that you know just because you can run something in a container doesn't mean you should. Right. Right. And so things like data stores, uh, often th the operational characteristics of a hosted cloud service, Azure Cosmos DB, for example, are going to be much more appealing to a container-based equivalent. Um, and yet people want to be able to use the Kubernetes APIs to manage that stuff. 
So how do we build a bridge between Kubernetes and this world of Azure services, or even on-prem services, Oracle databases, things like that? Um, the Open Service Broker API has some verbs, provision, deprovision, bind, unbind, um, and give me the catalog, right? And that's basically the broker, right? That's it. Um, and so what we did was we built a set of Kubernetes resources and Kubernetes controllers that can manage the lifecycle of apps. And what you get at the end of it is a Helm chart where you can Helm install WordPress and it looks and feels just like any other Helm chart that you would install, but where there would be a MySQL container, you instead have Azure database for MySQL. But the lifecycle management and the tooling is exactly the same. Very cool. Yeah. So let me go back to uh, a little further back in the past where how many years it has it been since the birth, I guess, public birth of some sort with Kubernetes? Like how, uh, how far back does it go? It's about three and a half years. It'll be okay. four years in next June. Four years. And so I think pre-call, I don't know if this made it into the actual audio that would go to the listeners' ears or not, but, uh, Brennan, when you said you can remember a year, year and a half back even-ish where people were still questioning Kubernetes. Yeah. Know, we're at a point now where, to me, and maybe everyone else is thinking this too, is like Kubernetes is one. Yeah. You know, it's, it's definitely... You've got a, a conference that was 1,000 people last year, 4,000 people, 4,200 people this year, um, significant growth, a lot of buy-in from worldwide partners, you know, members in the CNCF and, and so forth. So it's, it's yeah. definitely one. Can you kind of, as somebody who's been there since the beginning, shed some light on you know, kind of where you came from and where you're at now? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 really incredible to see. Um, it's uh, it's humbling, I would say. Uh, Did you expect it? I mean, is it a surprise to you? To some, I mean, I know you're I mean, good, and uh, the team behind is good. I don't think you can ever expect this kind of stuff, right? right? I mean, I think you have this to. Is a shift. You have to go into it and 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 believe that you're going to work hard, and hopefully, mm -hmm. the right things are going to happen. But you, you know, I don't know that you ever take it for granted, right? Um, I, I think that you know there was a moment. I really actually remember a distinct moment. About a year and a half ago, I would say, maybe a year and three quarters ago, where I kind of felt the wind. It's like the wind switched from being in my face to being at my back, right? Like, and it was sort of just this intuitive sense of, of like, you've crested the hill and you're not done, but like, it's, it's, it's getting easier. Right. Um, I still think that there are a lot of people out there who are thinking about container orchestration and still sort of wondering, you know, where, where, What's, what's the value prop for me? Um, so I think they, we're still talking about container orchestration, but I don't think we're gonna talk anymore about what container orchestrator to use. I think we kind of always knew that that was gonna happen for some API. At some point, some, one was, someone, someone was gonna, it yeah. just doesn't make any sense, right? Like if you're a monitoring company, if you're a developer, like you don't want there to be multiple APIs for this. You want there to be one API because then you know, right. you know I remember we had all these discussions and Gabe knows this because he actually took Deus and platformed it on a bunch of different orchestrators before they chose uh, Kubernetes. Like we talk to people and they say like, which one am I supposed to target? I'm a monitoring company. Which one am I supposed to target? Right? We don't have those conversations anymore, right. and I think everybody's happier. The developer ecosystem is happier for for having that. Um, I kind of always said there would be sort of a POSIX standard here, and I think that's what we're seeing emerge. And and now the exciting thing is, okay, if this is a commodity, if every public cloud has this as a service, what do we build next? What do we build on top? Right? And so I think that's the other exciting part is that we can finally sort of. Put put the put the orchestration API behind us, and and it, and it was never intended to be the final API. We need to start thinking about what are the layers we build on top, um, and and that's really exciting to me. Do you have any insights into what's next then? Well, so I mean, MetaParticle, what I, that I talked about yesterday, that was interesting. Is is something that I think is is important. Um, 
I you want to give a breakdown real quick for those? Sure, yeah. So MetaParticle, it's actually a, an independent open source project at, at metaparticle.io. Um, it's really trying to, I would say, bring distributed systems to people who might not otherwise be distributed systems developers. Um, uh, another way that I've said it before is like Visual Basic for the cloud, right? Like how do you, how do you have that kind of an experience where you can think about the concepts of cloud-native computing, but not necessarily the details of, hey, there's this YAML file here, and there's this Kubernetes object. Maybe I just describe my system as having four replicas, and I want you to take care of ensuring that you, you know, in code, I'll say I want four replicas, and you take care of figuring out how to deploy it, and how to put a load balancer in front of it, and stuff like that. Um, I think that there's always been this inevitable trend in configuration management, and actually we talk about this a lot with the Helm team, around like configuration management gets more and more programmatic and eventually it turns into like a bad programming language. And, and I think that at some level we should just admit that configuration is code. People have said configuration is code, and I think we should admit that like, well, if configuration is code, maybe you should just write it in a real programming language, right? There's all of this tooling around unit testing that we've built, all of these practices around writing software code yeah. that, that don't extend into the way we configure and deploy our applications at all, right? I don't think that anybody, I just, you know, someone pinged me and said, I was just starting to think about what it meant to unit test a Kubernetes config, right? That's, it's kind of crazy that we have 20 years of people thinking about unit testing code and yet we're having to reinvent it for configs. Configs, like yeah. why? We should just go to a place where there's frameworks, there's UI, there's all of the kind of stuff that we expect, code conventions, all of this stuff, um, and, and we can express that in, in code. And I think if you do that, not only do you end up with a better system with one source of truth, but you actually also build a more accessible system. You can have people who might otherwise just be front-end JavaScript programmers who are starting to think about deploying distributed systems. I, I think it's the only way that we scale the industry to the number of systems that need to be built. Um, so I think that's one of them. I mean, I think it's like maybe like Kubernetes at the beginning. It, it's an experiment. It's an idea. I want to start a conversation and start a community. Um, I don't know that it'll be the one, but yeah. I think something like it will, will, will be, be the way that we build systems in the future. This question is more for either of you, really. It just kind of teeing off of what you said there is how we got here. So can you can you go back into the history of Kubernetes and the community, not just the technology, but the community, the impact? Like, how do we get here? What were sure. the right recipes that other open source, sure. you know, would bees of Kubernetes? Maybe there's not a repeat, but there's somebody out there looking to what you all have done around the technologies, yeah. around the community, around the governance, even around joining CNCF and Google's perspective and. Yeah. Uh, now Microsoft's perspective on, on yeah I think uh, I mean I, I, can, I can sort of talk about that a little. Sorry to dig Gabe can give his perspective as well. Um, I was a student of the FreeBSD Linux wars um, in the early two thousands, and and when I was thinking about community and and technology and how technologies win, I thought a lot about that. Um, and and you know I think Linux in that world won because it was friendly and open and it was an ecosystem that you could build on yeah. right it didn't win there are no technical reasons why it won i don't think it, it won because of the community that it built and it won because of the ecosystem that developed around it um and then the technology came afterwards right people were like oh okay it's one like let's go in and harden security let's go in and do all of these things um and and so that was part of it was that it's not okay to just build a community you have to build an ecosystem you have to do a good job of, of sort of telegraphing what you are and what you're not and staying to your commitments and saying, you know what, this is the line where Kubernetes stops 
And this is the line where, you know, and I think we did that with Helm, actually. Like, we, I had conversations with Gabe where, where we said, like, configuration management, package management is something that Kubernetes is not going to do. We're not going to pull that into the core. That's going to be a project that lives on top, right. gives space for an ecosystem to develop around you. Um, I also think I went into it with a real, uh, real humble attitude, a real, like, every single question is important kind of attitude. I think that's incredibly important also. Um, it makes it a welcoming community. I think I'm really proud of the community that we've, we've developed. I think it's pretty unique, honestly, in, yeah. in tech in general in terms of the degree to which it, it welcomes people in. Um, I think that's critically important and was, I hope, a, a big part of the success as well. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about the perspective since you kind of come at it as a uh, develop user experience, implementer, kind of end user perspective, because you weren't involved in the creation of Kubernetes. You were involved in building something like a pass and needed an orchestrator, you know, the entire time. And here comes Kubernetes. I, can you kind of yeah, you know, your perspective it, on that? You know, it's interesting to me. I, I, one of the things, before I joined Microsoft, I would pull up a quote from the Borg paper. You know, a lot of these systems are sort of inspired by the way Google, you know, was managing infrastructure internally. And in the Borg paper, like right in the first part of it, they call out the reasons why they built it. Um, and what the, you know, there's three three things they call out. The first is they wanted to empower developers to for self-service, right? They wanted developers to be able to deploy to these large clusters with without having to involve ops, for example. The second thing is they wanted to build software that was extremely reliable and resilient to underlying infrastructure failures. And the third thing was that they wanted to be able to throw hardware at the problem to scale out, right? So if there was a scale event or you know they needed to you know distribute a workload, they could just add capacity and everything would take care of itself. And what's interesting to me is I think that you know, though not all companies operate at that scale, Microsoft scale, Google scale, that kind of scale, those three things are still important yeah. to everyone, right? And especially as we're, you know, the, the the reality is there's only so much compute power you can pack into one server. And, you know, as you get, you know, the benefits of distributing this stuff out and self-healing infrastructures that eventually converge, um, you know, d declarative models for how you want to manage this stuff, uh, you know, this really impacts folks, you know, who are operating at, you know, 20 server scale, uh, you know, as well as, you know, uh, many thousand server scale. So um, I was enticed by that that proposition. And I think that we still have a lot to go on that first thing, the empowering developers. And I think that, you know, my big takeaway from this conference, including not just Brendan's uh, keynote, but also, you know, Kelsey this morning, talking about how, look, you know, we still, and, and Michelle New Raleigh actually at the uh, uh, keynote before talking about, look, Kubernetes is still too hard for developers. Um, so I still think we've got a ways to go there. But the good news is that, you know, on the other dimensions, I think we're actually in a pretty good place. Brent and I actually were joking the other day that when we start talking about enterprise security features like RBAC and, you know, policy and governance, you know, you know, the project is like moved on like in front from its phase. So um, I think that's that's a good thing to see. Right. Because the thing uh, you know, means things are maturing. This episode is brought to you by Google Cloud Platform and their awesome weekly podcast where Google developer advocates answer questions, get in the weeds, and talk to experts, customers, and partners about GCP. 
Here's a preview of episode 111, where Mark Mandel is asking Sam Ramji about products he's passionate about in the future of cloud. Are there particular like technical products that like we have or potentially may have in the future that get you like really excited? Anything you're, you're particularly passionate about right now? Oh boy! Um, I mean, okay. just pick one. Just I one. was going to say, like, <laughs> clearly, I'm not a very passionate person. I'm really lucky; I get to care about all the things I'm doing. There's a lot of really interesting things happening in terms of how do we take code, which is a, a developer's set of intents, and turn it into running production systems that developers and operators can both collaborate on. There's a whole chain of technologies there, both first-party technologies and third-party technologies. Third-party like Spinnaker that we've gotten into. It's an open source project that was started by Netflix, and we've gotten really involved in it. It's a really nice way to do multi-cloud computing. And all of these things really need to come back to giving developers control of exactly how they want their code turned into an artifact like a container, how they want it structured into services and pods, and where they might want to run it. So I think part of what brought me to Google is this core belief in open hybrid cloud. When I left Cloud Foundry, I had spent two years you know, committing all of my heartbeats to putting technology back under the control of the companies that use it rather than the companies that sell it. And part of what brought me here was Brian Stevens said, you know, our mission is to be the open cloud. I said, you must be kidding me. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Every hyperscale cloud provider is clearly an, an ambitious monopolist. Not at all, right? So when we look at this. So if you're looking to move to the cloud or generally interested in deeply technical cloud-focused conversations, check this podcast out. It publishes weekly, and you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, YouTube, and more. Head to gcppodcast.com and look for the big subscribe button at the top right-hand corner. Once again, gcppodcast.com and by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced new, highly competitive droplet pricing on their standard plans on both the high and the low end scale of their pricing. They introduced a new flexible $15 plan where you can mix and match resources like RAM and the number of CPUs. And they're now leading the pack on CPU optimized droplets, which are ideal for data analysis or CI pipelines. And they're also working on per second billing. Here's a quote from their recent blog post on the new droplet plans, quote, we understand that price to performance ratios are of the utmost consideration when you're choosing a hosting provider and we're committed to being a price to performance leader in the market. As we continue to find ways to optimize our infrastructure, we plan to pass those savings on to you, our customers." End quote. Head to do.co slash changelog to get started. New accounts get $100 of hosting credit to use in your first 60 days. Once again, at the do.co slash changelog. Let's talk about the, I guess, the acceptance of it and who's using it. Because I think at this conference, my eyes was open to a different type, I guess, of, of user, which I really hadn't considered, but I'm not as close to this project as you guys are. But it's like you've got people who are accepting the cloud, and then you've got traditional IT, which is present here, more than I've ever seen at maybe the kind of tech conferences I've gone to over my years. I see a, a huge presence of like actual IT, not just like cloud, you know, application developers who ship to the cloud and are in this new world where sort of like old school, you know, virtual machines and like behind the scenes, behind firewalls, that that IT is present here looking to new ways where Kubernetes yeah. is taking over what they had done before. Well, and I think and in, that, yeah. in some ways they're kind of scared of it. 
Well, I don't know. I mean, I would hope that they're not in the sense that. But I'm so much scared of it. Let me clarify what I mean by scared is that it moves so fast. They're used to deploying and chilling out and just sort of maintaining, not in a bad way, yeah. but that's sort of like the the older IT world. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, and that's not here with Kubernetes. Kubernetes but, is fast moving. Th- yeah, although I, I, says, I, you know, we've talked a lot about how much it needs to slow down. Um, like and so I think that there is a component of like once you're starting to talk about those enterprise features, you're also starting to talk about, hey, maybe I mean it's great to have a three month release cycle, but you know maybe if if, if half your customers aren't going to adopt your three month release, the what's the point? Um, but I would also say that you know I think that as much as we talk about Kubernetes empowering developers. I think Kubernetes actually also really empowers operators, even traditional machine operators, because the whole purpose of the technology is to provide this abstraction boundary between the developer and the machine, right? And so just like I can deploy apps and not care what machine they land on, that makes a reliable app, I can upgrade machines and know that I'm not gonna impact customers, right? If I'm an IT ops and I wanna roll a new kernel, I don't have to go talk to all of the, my application owners and convince them and try and like, say, hey, please, could you reboot your app? Like, you know, we need to do this security migration. No, I just go through the cluster one by one, do the upgrade, reboot the machine, do the upgrade, reboot the machine. And I know that the Kubernetes infrastructure will move those end user applications around so they won't even notice. They won't even know that I went and did a software upgrade across my entire OS, right? That's a hugely empowering thing for a, a traditional IT, IT developer. I think that separation of concerns is actually one of its real strengths um, you know, we think of it as being developer-oriented technology because at the end of the day, it's a developer-oriented API. But the abstraction boundary and the isolation works in both. The decoupling works in both directions. Uh, and so I actually am not surprised at all that uh, there are you know, more traditional IT people here. Because if I were them, I would adopt this in a heartbeat because it's going to make my life dramatically easier. Okay. Yeah, one of the big things that we're seeing from those traditional IT folks is the desire to lift and shift workloads into containers. You know, I've been uh, present for uh, some pretty shocking, you know, the, the idea that you could go take a bunch of existing legacy Windows applications and in a few days get those things wrapped up in containers moved over to an orchestrator and get all the benefits of, you know, the self-healing system, you know, node failures, you know, the workloads are going to move around, you know, the applications are much more resilient. You get to go back and decommission a bunch of old servers and hardware. Maybe you throw a cloud move into the mix. I mean, that stuff is really, really enticing to traditional IT orgs, right? And these are things that container orchestration makes possible. So I definitely agree with Brendan. I mean, there's a lot to like here. Um, and you know, I think we, we have to be conscious that container orchestration is sufficiently generalized that sort of modern cloud native microservice development though we associate those you know that with kubernetes very closely there's actually a lot of other uses for yeah, this stuff for sure. iot being another one i mean lots of different things machine learning i mean there's lots of different things that you can use this for um, and i think we're just scratching the surface of that yeah, yeah I, mean, I think that's definitely the case that i see people with you know maybe they're running a binary that they don't even know how to recompile from a old version of linux and suddenly with containers they know that they can upgrade the kernel but keep that that whole thing working and package up all the libraries and all the you know they can effectively run like a red hat 4 binary on top of a modern linux operating system right that's that's hugely compelling for a lot of it operators so what do you what do you say then when you said before about slowing down uh, in a press conference yesterday, neither of you were there, I don't believe, I didn't see you there at least, um, a fellow asked the question of LTSing Kubernetes to the point where yeah. some IT can 
like you had said, implement it. There's a new release. Have some sort of schedule where uh, this will be supported for a while. You can kind of depend on certain APIs. You could build up on certain things. Yeah. Is there any conversations around that kind of slow-moving pace or not slowing to the point where you're not innovating and moving sure. fast, but to the point where your release cycle can actually adopt some users? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that we've... We haven't had the conversation around a formal LTS. Um, we do backport patches, important patches, not just to the previous release, but actually several releases back. Um, and so we do do some of the sort of more longer-term support things that you might consider into the past releases. Um, but that probably buys you a year, maybe. You know, mm -hmm. conservatively, that would buy you a year before mostly the project would throw up its hands and say, sorry, you yeah. should upgrade. Um, I, I do think we're going to have to do that kind of stuff. I mean, I think maybe looking at the way that uh, Ubuntu does long-term support, you know, with a long-term support release and then a bunch of smaller yeah. releases along the way that you can use if you want, but but they're not the long-term support releases, may be the kind of model that we need to, to, to move to. Um, I, I do think, though, that in the move to cloud, you know, one of the things that I think you're seeing is is a move towards more like auto upgrading systems, right? I mean, one of the analogies that I draw is people used to update their browser. Now, you know, you, people don't update their browser. The no. browser just updates itself. Yeah, I don't right? even think like, about that anymore. Nobody even thinks about it. Right? Like, you couldn't even tell me. I guarantee you, you can't even tell me the version of the browser you're running. Like seventy-five. Yeah, like who knows? <laughs> I don't right? know. It's, that's how like, many versions. That's, that's how been. much you pay attention to it, right? Yeah. And and so I think there's a degree to which. Um, if we're good about backward compatibility and we're good about making sure that what you did last year still works, people aren't going to care as much about like what version of it is in, in, a, you know, in an AKS world where we're delivering the Kubernetes API as a managed service. Um, so I think there's, it's a little bit of both. I think we're going to have to do some of that, but I think also as people enter into the service, you know, Kubernetes as a service world, maybe they're not as worried about, about that stuff. Maybe let's talk about uh, something you mentioned yesterday in your keynote, which I thought was pretty interesting. It was this this being able to scale to 100,000, no, 100 million, not 100,000, 100 million developers. Can you kind of, we'll link up to your keynote uh, on video, but can, can you can you give like maybe a two-minute overview of what you meant by scaling to that, the, the scale at which GitHub is moving and open source is moving and what that means for, because we said earlier one of the key components of successful Kubernetes Cloud native is community, and that yeah. means more developers. For sure, and and I think one of the reasons we've invested. I mean, Gabe mentioned about third-party resources. Like, um, I started work on third-party resources before we even hit 1.0, um, because it was clear even then. Uh, I didn't try and merge it until after 1.0, but I, but it was clear even then that extensibility and enabling people to build and integrate with Kubernetes without being in the core of Kubernetes was going to be critical to our success. We had already sort of, we were already seeing the strain points of the community and, and we were, I don't even know, like probably at 100 contributors at that point, not the thousand plus that we have now. Um, and so that's a big push, making sure that we can effectively continue to innovate and iterate on the ecosystem without having to change the core code base as much. And, and that's, a, that's a huge part of, of scaling. But I also think that we have to um, start considering that the people who we are trying to appeal to are not necessarily going to be distributed systems experts. right? I think up to this point, we've basically assumed that you have some degree of experience with delivering reliable systems at scale if you're going to come play in the Kubernetes world. Um, and I, if we're going to go forward from here, we have to not make that assumption. 
um, and maybe separate out. Maybe if you're in the core, you need to do that. But if you're building on top, you should be able to consume abstractions that make sense to you uh, at the level that you want to build at. So. You, you, Brent and I talk a lot about this idea you know, this, you know, from my past heritage. It, it, easy for me to color it all in past, but talk about this idea of verticalized pass. And I think that you know part of getting to 100 million developers is going to be crafting a set of experiences that are unique, right? That are targeted at different audiences, um, and some are going to be GUI based, some are going to be CLI based, some are going to be editing code in an IDE, and others are going to be you know who knows, right? Um, but you know, there is no one-size-fits-all answer to all the problems that we're going to need to solve going forward. So I think approaching this thoughtfully you know, with uh, an eye towards principled architecture of the different layers is what's going to allow us to set up a, a really resilient foundation um, in order to build the type of experiences that, you know, frankly, society is depending yeah. on us to build. Yeah, for sure. And I think that when someone once said it's it's... The most important thing in any project is knowing what you are not. It's not knowing what you are, it's knowing what you're not. And I think if you set those things up the right way and you, you resist the urge to try and become everything, then you build the right layering and you build the right modularity. Um, I think that's that's one of the guiding posts we try and I try and live live to. So So maybe in closing, let's talk to um, those out there who've heard the the term cloud native. They've heard the term Kubernetes. They've looked at orchestration. They've looked at containers, but they've never really taken that first step. They've dabbled with containers, but they've never really took, taken the adoption to even cloud. Sure. Um, what are some good resources that you all point people to often to kind of get those first steps to get that aha moment? Because both of you have a, not so much you, but Brent, uh, Gabe, you have a first day that you touched Kubernetes and you were like, this is amazing. So where, where do you send people to to kind of get that you know, that original aha moment with Kubernetes and to say, this well, is what we should do. Well, you know, there's a couple of things. I think the, the, the first thing for me is I think that, you know, the, the 12 factor methodology, it's not directly related to Kubernetes, but I think it was a really important moment in sort of the development of you know, how you would build software uh, in a way that is friendly for the cloud. I think reading through that, it doesn't take very long. I think what is it pretty, called? 12factor.net is 12 the website. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it's actually pretty dated, but it's actually held up uh, quite well over time, I'd say. Um, and then the other, I, you know, I don't know if there's a resource for this, Brendan, you might know, but the, the thing for me that that really hit, hit home with Kubernetes was the idea of declarative infrastructure that has control loops that reconcile desired state and current state. And you know, these uh, you know, self-healing systems, right? And, and how all of Kubernetes is basically a series of objects that are representing desired state and then a series of controllers that are enforcing that desired state and, and pushing the world towards that state over time. Uh, it was the first project I'd ever seen that had that kind of architecture that deeply. And I actually think that was part of the extensibility model because really what you do with the extension model is you say, well, here's a new type of resource and I want to run another you know, controller that's going to you know, sort of enforce that sort of state. Um, and there is a level of elegance and, and simplicity to the whole model that it was just different than anything else that was out there. Um, everything else felt cumbersome, complex in comparison. I think the only thing that was weird, awkward about Kubernetes was the networking model, but um, shockingly, it only took like a few months for everyone to realize that the Kubernetes networking model was actually the right one. Um, and then everyone started adopting this IP per container, IP per pod kind of model. And you know, once that's sort of behind you, you're, you're left with this core of Kubernetes. It's actually really quite beautiful and really quite elegant in my view. 
One last one before we go. Um, speak to th- this podcast speaks to developers. So you got people out there that thinking like, how can I get involved? Not so much just using it, using Kubernetes or getting involved in CNCF or the different places that they can go to or the different projects involved in CNCF. Um, but what about contributors for, for open source? So I, I hear there's a contributor ladder. I think it's CNCF global, like at the TOC level, but not so much at a Kubernetes level. What do you do to get new contributors? What's the onboarding ramp? Like how do you Sure. Adopt new developers into the into the the project. Yeah, I think it's, I think there's a variety of things. I mean, one thing I would say is that uh, you know the Slack channel is super active and it's se- it's separated, right? We have a separate channel for users versus developers. Um, so you know, some people go and ask like, how do I deploy apps? Questions on the users channel, and in, but if you want to go do coding, there's the developers channel. Um, we try and mark a bunch of the GitHub issues with things like help wanted. Um, some of that stuff is sometimes dated, and you know we don't probably do as great a job curating that as we could, but that's a good place to start. I would also say, though, that we're, we're reaching a place where there is so much in the ecosystem that oftentimes a great way to get started is, is in one of the ecosystem projects, right? So I've been doing a lot of work lately on, uh, diff- on client libraries in different languages, right? Working on the Java client library, the .NET client library, the TypeScript client library. And that's nice because like it's a it's an important part of the ecosystem, but it's a separate project from the main project, right? And so it's an easier thing to wrap your head around and and maybe it's even in a language that you're familiar with as opposed to go if you haven't had a chance to look at go. So I think there's a variety of different places where you can find access points. Um, I would I would say with the main Kubernetes project, you know, be persistent and patient. Um, we really do want and value the contributions. We know that it's messier and harder in places than it probably ought to be. Um, and in fact, there's a SIG contributor experience. There's a special interest group for contributor experience that is kind of continuously trying to make it better. Um, and that's where things like the contributor ladder comes out of and, and some of the messages that the bots chat back to you on your GitHub issues and stuff like that. Um, but uh, we definitely welcome welcome people to come in and, and contribute um, and figure out the place that works best for them. Very cool. So. What uh, anything else that uh, that I didn't ask that you guys are like, man, I, I, I want to share this to to this uh, you know to this community listen to the show. Yeah, I, I think the, 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 the one thing that that I'm kind of excited about that that we announced at the conference is this thing called the virtual Kublet. Um, and so I've heard about this. Yeah, so Eric St. Martin's a friend of mine. He I, runs GoTime. He was part of the hack team that's been here for a week doing that. Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> I got some of the backstory on it. Yeah, yeah, and and so you know Eric, Eric helped out quite a bit on that effort actually. And and what's cool about it to me is that. It's it's really evidence of Kubernetes staying power, right? Because we didn't have this concept of a serverless, you know, container runtime like what we shipped with Azure Container Services back in July, where the first cloud provider, major cloud provider, come out with anything like that. And we knew when we launched it that people were yes, they were going to want to use it directly. Containers in the cloud is is pretty nice. AZ Container Create turns out to be a pretty nice experience for doing simple, simple stuff. But we also knew folks were going to want to use the Kubernetes API. So we shipped a connector uh, that basically bridged the two things. Um, immediately, Hyper.sh, who had a similar product, they forked the connector, friendly fork, but you know, they forked the connector, wrote their own runtime. And since then, Brendan and I were like, oh man, you know, there's probably something we should do here. And there's actually a lot of meaty problems that we don't know how to solve yet. How do you attach volumes to a serverless container? How do you manage load balancers and, and things like that? I mean, scheduling affinities. I mean, a lot of open questions. And um, I'm really pleased to see the reception to the virtual coolant has been tremendous. And, you know, it looks like we're going 
going to have pretty much all the major clouds who have and, and, and startups who have these serverless container runtimes you know, working together on this code base that we're going to be donating upstream to the Kubernetes ecosystem. And um, really excited to see that come to fruition. Yeah, for sure. I think that's going to be over the next few years. I think one of the things we're going to definitely move to is, you know, if Kubernetes lets you not think about your machines, I think in many cases, people don't even want to have machines. Right. Yeah. So this move towards serverless containers and orchestration of serverless containers, I think, is the next the next really important part of what we're doing. So, listeners, I know we just barely scratched the surface on this virtual kubelet, and I'm sure that in a future episode of Go Time, Eric will go deep on uh, what's going on there. So, tune into a future Go Time episode. Uh, but for now, fellas, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Thank Thanks you for having so us. Much. Thanks for having us. All right, that's it for this episode of The Changelog. If you enjoyed this show, share it with a friend. Head to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever you want to call it. Go to your favorite podcast app, and if they have the ability to favorite it or share it, do us a favor and share it with a friend and help us get known. Leave us a review, and we appreciate it. Thank you to our sponsors, Red Hat, and their awesome podcast, Command Line Heroes. Also, our friends at DigitalOcean and GCP Podcast. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly, so head to Fastly.com to learn more. Air monitoring is by Rollbar. Head to Rollbar.com. And we host everything we do on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Check them out. Support the show. And the Changelog is hosted by myself, Adam Stukoviak, and Jared Santo. Editing is by Jonathan Youngblood. Music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more episodes just like this at Changelog.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.